Some of you know the name Russell Moore. He was the Dean of Theology at Southern Seminary. He was the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Most recently, he's the director of the Public Theology Project at Christianity Today. He wrote a book about 15 years ago that was important to our lives. He, he adopted two children from Russia. So that's, that's Russell Moore's CV in a few words. Some of you know that name. Um, a lot more of you probably know the name Rain Wilson, who will be eternally known as Dwight Schrute from The Office, the perfect blend of all sorts of things. <clears throat> But what Rain Wilson is known for of late is that he wrote a book. He's an author, among other things. And he wrote a book called Soul Boom. Uh, Rain Wilson uh, both was reared in, left, and returned to the childhood faith that he had from his family called Baha'i. Some of you have heard of Baha'i. Um, it, it, uh, it prides itself on listening to the teachings of an Iranian uh, sage named Baha'u'llah. And uh, what's distinctive about Baha'i is that it has respect for all faith traditions and tries to hold them close and tries to incorporate them all into an <clears throat> overall way of seeing the world and of finding equilibrium in this, in this reality. And <clears throat> it just turns out that Russell Moore and Rain Wilson got together a few weeks ago on Russell Moore's podcast, and they had a talk. And the name of Russell Moore's podcast is affectionately known as Tell Me Where I'm Wrong. And this week it was Tell Me Where I'm Wrong About Spirituality. And so he invites Rain Wilson on there, who, who, you know, to his credit, wrote a book to recover a sense of why spirituality is important for a younger generation, and even to renew a kind of appreciation for institutional religion. So I'm going to show you about three minutes from that exchange. There's plenty in there. It's in the resource doc this week if you want to see the sermon notes, you want to take it in and it's full. But we're going to pick it up midstream here and... and what your first thing you're going to hear here is Russell Moore responding to Rain Wilson's kind of acknowledgement that in every faith tradition, you know, it binds a community together that brings a lot of hope and stability and solidarity and, um, you know, winsomeness in those communities. And, and here's Russell Moore trying to sift through that sense that, that uh, Rain Wilson brings to the world. And then it kind of takes a different turn that I think really is indicative and really prepares us for what we're going to hear today. So take this in for me seems often when people talk about the benefits that come with religion, it seems to me that's sometimes kind of like saying placebos work, so let's all take placebos, <laughs> which means if you know this, if you know it's a placebo, it, it doesn't work. And so the benefits of religion come with people who actually believe there's something objectively true there. Mm -hmm. And that means uh, that, that there are things that are not. So, I mean, those, those early Christian communities are coming around letters yep. of Paul, often that are saying, if, if Christ is not raised, none of this matters. You, you, you would be better off, uh, you, you would be better off just uh, living your life and dying. Yeah, uh, they're not, it's real. not a rotary meeting. They're not yeah, getting right. together <laughs> just to kind of like hang out and have a potluck and share stories and good times and high five each other. There is a, a central belief, like I said, that they hang their hat on. What, what would it take for you to change uh, and to be persuaded? Or would you say, I really, I've, I've investigated everything and I'm, I'm pretty certain about where I am now. 
Yeah, um, great. What would it take for you to become a Baha'i? What would it take for you yeah. to believe that Jesus's return is not going to be on a cloud with trumpets, but no. is actually going to be the return of the spirit of Jesus Christ? For me, um, I view myself as a Baha'i and a Christian. So I do love Jesus Christ with all of my heart, and I love his example. I love his words. I don't necessarily get with the Nicene Creed or, you know, how things shook down in the, you know, the creation of the Catholic Church and then the Protestant Revolution and Martin Luther. Like, I, you know, all of that stuff I don't pay that much attention to as a Baha'i. So I've already converted. Consider me converted in the sense that I love and adore Jesus Christ. And I do believe that the only way through the Father when he was alive was the, the way, the truth, and the light was through Jesus Christ. I 100% I believe that. And then I also believe that the way to the Father when Muhammad was, was alive was through the, the teachings of the, of the Holy Quran. And now I believe that Baha'u'llah is the newest incarnation of the light. I, and I feel like um, there's a beautiful quote in the Baha'i faith, like, don't fall in love with the lamp, fall in love with the light. Um, I know there's a lot of Christians like, tearing their hair out, going, that's not a... right now, and that's fine. <laughs> but I will say this. The important thing, Russell, is people of faith need to work together and stick together. And the world is in a terrible place. And the more that we selflessly serve for the benefit of all of humanity um, and work side by side, elbow to elbow, agnostics, spiritual but not religious, born-again evangelicals, Muslims, Baha'is, Buddhists, that's what the world needs right now. That's so, what we need to do is all work together, find commonalities, uh, and love the example of Jesus serving the poor and, and work together and for transformation. Well, you, you said what would it take for me to become Baha'i. It would be becoming convinced that Jesus is the lamp or a lamp rather than the light. But uh, I, I believe he, he is the, the light. Oh, my gosh, that's a lot. Where do we even start? It's really weird to hear Dwight Schrute say, I, ado I adore and love Jesus. Like, it's a Christmas miracle. Um, you hear a person acting in good faith who is making a credible argument to have respect, even allegiance, to every faith tradition that, again, Baha'i seeks to incorporate into their entire religious worldview and ethic. And that's to be respected, right? I'm an Enneagram too, which for those of you, it's either a psychology test or it's astrology for Episcopalians, depending on your point of view, <laughs> right? I, whatever, I don't care. But it's, I'm a supportive encourager. So like the idea of we are the world, we are the children. I want to bring everybody together. Let's not, let's not think about our differences. Let's all just be of one mind and let's just, can we all get along, right? How many metaphors am I going to bring up here in this short amount of time? There's something attractive about that idea. And we all feel it. We're 21st century modern people that live in a pluralistic society. There's a draw to that. But, okay, if you were listening closely, and I'm not here to parse his words, and I'm not here to diss him for where he's coming from, but at some point you realize his attempt to emblazon the big blue bumper sticker, coexist, which 
Who doesn't want that? Like, who would not want that? We all want that. But here's the deal. Even in those few minutes that you're hearing Wayne Wilson talk about Baha'i, you hear him speak of Jesus in a certain way that you realize what's going on here. If you've ever taken a puzzle and you're trying to fit it all together, and if you're in a hurry, you can shove all the pieces together and try to make it fit. But in so doing, what you're going to have to do to make them all fit to form some sort of picture is you're going to have to start cutting off pieces of the puzzle. You're going to have to do a little bit of violence to each of those pieces in order for them to all fit together to suggest that they all form one coherent picture. You have to. Even in his depiction of who Jesus is, in that moment you realize, okay, there are parts that you are taking and then there are parts that you are leaving off because if you leave those parts in, these parts will never fit together. And I'm not dissing him. I'm not disrespecting him. I'm just saying if you want to do that, at some point you are not going to take those faith traditions on their own terms. It's inevitable. And the reason I bring that up here is because the way he will characterize what Muhammad is saying, what Jesus is saying, what Moses is saying, what Baha'u'llah is saying is this. He's putting them all in the same category. And the category is those who had a consciousness of God who has brought to us a whole compendium of wisdom that so long as you kind of hear that and reflect upon that and receive that and begin to follow it, it's all about finding their wisdom and walking in it. That about reflection and contemplation and embrace, and then you hit it. You hit the road. We're going with those words. Is Christianity like that? Yes and no. Do we believe that Jesus is a teacher? Absolutely. Do we believe that there is wisdom that he has for us? Come on, of course. But is that all he has for us? Absolutely not. Are we alone in our reflection and contemplation and meditation and obedience? Are we alone in that so that we might follow him? If you think that's it, I'm sorry, I have failed you. That is one reason why we are spending a season for however long it takes to talk about this thing, this one we know as the Holy Spirit. Whom we've already said, it's not just a way of speaking of God's exertion of power, though it is that. It's more than just a metaphor of who God is. We're talking about a one who is acting upon us. And that is one difference the Spirit makes. With all respect to where Rain Wilson's going in his project, I commend him for it. With all due respect to other faith traditions that you and I have a certain respect for, and we can, and there's nothing unreasonable about that. But to say that they're all in the same category is actually to cut off parts of the puzzle pieces of each in order to fit them all together. And one part you have to cut off in order for them to fit together is to leave out this idea that the Holy Spirit is involved in faith. We want to consider what difference, one difference the Spirit makes. And that one difference that we're going to talk about today, we're going to spend two weeks on it. And it's this whole doctrine of regeneration. Regeneration? Isn't that what, you know, isn't that what happens to planarians when you cut off part of their... Is that... Is that what intermittent fasting does for you, Andrew Huberman? Is that, is that what that's all about? Is that what, is that what, mm, no and yes. It's a real thing. And we're going to listen to a very familiar passage and a couple less familiar passages that are going to unpack this idea of what it means to be regenerated. It's in part to be made new. 
And we're going to look at that idea this morning, at least, through a few passages under three heads. What does regeneration purpose? What does it prompt? And what does it produce? What does regeneration purpose? What does it prompt? What does it produce? We'll start in John 3, but we won't be done until we get to Acts 16. Don't worry, we won't read all of that. Would you stand? We're in John chapter 3 first. John 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, hop over to Acts chapter 2 on the back end of where Andrew started last week. It's the day of Pentecost. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then fast forward to Acts chapter 16. Paul and his entourage, his friends, his team are in Macedonia, which is in Greece, and this happens. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. Okay. That's a lot of data in three different locations. Let's start, work through these carefully. John 3, it's early in his ministry. He's already turned the water into wine. Woohoo! Right? And he's already been turning some heads. And he's clearly turned the head of one who is a wise, learned, reputable leader of the Jewish ruling council known as the Sanhedrin. His name is Nicodemus. And just as you remember from a few weeks ago when Jesus is 12, he's in the temple and he's kind of having a coffee clatch with the 
resident rabbis, and he's asking questions, and he's learning, and he's saying stuff that's making them go, where did this kid go to seminary, right? He knows so much. How does he know so much? And they're astonished. Well, fast forward, uh, you know, 18 years or, or so, and here's Nicodemus having the same impact, same, same impression. He comes to him at night, and there's a reason John mentions that detail, because if anybody knew that a member of the Jewish ruling council was coming to hear, listen to Jesus, is like, I'm sorry, cancel, you're done, we're deplatforming you immediately. You don't know who this guy is, and he's dangerous. He goes, he says, I think something's up here, and you're very clearly either from God or with God, whatever the case may be. And that, to any unsuspecting person who's reading this passage for the very first time, they'd be like, now here's an irony. You got this rabbi, he's educated, learned, he's wise, he's got a reputation, he's been noted for his reputation such that he now has influence and discretion as a member of the religious authority. He's the one coming to this guy that nobody knows, who has no reputation, who has no pedigree, and certainly has no credentials. And the rabbi is asking him questions. The turntables. What's going on? What are you happening? And, you know, we could get into the, the nitty-gritty of the exchange and how Nicodemus gets confused. Here, here's, here's the exchange and, and the heart of the exchange in, in so many words. Unless you are born again, Jesus says, unless you are born from above, you can't enter the kingdom. What, what does that mean? Unless something of lasting value occurs in you that appears then everything that you think is of lasting value, like your learnedness, like your education, like your reputation, like your wisdom, that actually is of no lasting value. Something has to happen to you. What does he mean? Born from above. What, what is that? You and I are all familiar with one birth because we were all there when it happened. We were born. It was there, and it was loud, and it was important and it was you being born of the flesh that's what you are your flesh your your bone your sinew your blood your marrow your all of those things and so in john chapter one when it speaks of being born of bud and born of the flesh and born of the will of people that's the first birth that's the one that we're all familiar with and then jesus introduces this thing that is not familiar to us that is non-material and which he says is non-negotiable this is not a, yeah, maybe I would like that. I'll opt for that. Jesus is like, you don't have a choice. This is necessary. And what's different about this birth is, he says in verse 5, it is you are born of water and the Spirit. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled trying to understand, what did Jesus mean by that? Could you elaborate, right? I mean, does he, is he talking about baptism there? Uh... Is he talking about a birth where, you know, the mom gets a shot of liquor during labor, word and spirit? Is that, is that it? No. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> what do you think an epidural is? Um, no. A case can be made that for Jesus to invoke those two ideas, water and the spirit, that he's got in the back of his mind a prophet from several centuries earlier known as Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet during the time of Israel's exile. They've been sent into exile as a matter of God's discipline for a habitual refusal to trust who the Lord is and a habitual belief that they are the captain of their own fate, the master of their own soul. 
They have done that. They have believed that. And Ezekiel, in that moment, is sent to speak to them. You heard in our affirmation of faith from Ezekiel 37 a, a metaphorical moment of speak unto dry bones that they might come alive again. That's imagery that's in Jesus' mind. But the direct imagery that's in Jesus' mind is what happens a chapter earlier in Ezekiel 36, where Ezekiel speaks of a day that is coming in which even though, Israel, you were given the law, and even though you have become hardened to that law, something is going to happen. What's going to happen? Something wonderful. That the Lord is going to come, and he's going to do something, and he's going to do something to your heart. Such that what has happened to you, what you have done in the past, and what is corrupt about you, that will be cleansed. You will be unburdened. And you will be given something that is new life in you. So you hear in Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You should be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put that within you. What John chapter 3 is out to depict for us is that that which Ezekiel anticipated has now come into play in who Jesus is doing, what he's doing. He's the one. That moment is accompanying him. He's responsible for it. There will be a new birth in your spirit, lowercase s, your inner being, the way you process, the way you see, the affections that you have, that will be wrought by the spirit, capital S. You will be acted upon. And so again, to appeal to a Rain Wilson worldview, and man, if I am misrepresenting where he's coming from, I, then I, I'm automatically apologizing in advance. But as I listen to him, and what as I discern from him, it is his contention, implicit or otherwise, is that you and I come to illumination by our own stilling of our own heart, the quieting of our own soul, the reflection upon what we've been given, and then somehow, through that act of our own mind, we are illumined. It's not as if a, a Christian point of view di, di, um, di, different, uh, has a different view of that. It's just that this illumination comes by an intervention of God. It is not simply your own act of mind. You are being acted upon. And that's crucial. That's crucial. That's a difference. And if you want to cut that part off, you can. Good luck in following him. Because there are plenty of days that I don't want to. There are plenty of days where it feels absurd and I am numb. I need an intervention. And so do you. Now, what Jesus is talking about here for a modern Western mind is, is at the same time frustrating and freeing. Why is it frustrating? The closest thing to an exhortation that Jesus has given at this moment, he says, now, what I said to you, you must be born again. Jesus is not saying to Nicodemus, all right, you've heard what I said. Now, snip, snap, go get born again. Do it. Move. It's daylight. Tomorrow will be burning. Come on. It's not what he's saying. In fact, that would be a contradiction to what being born from above is. There's no control over it. You can't do it. You can't influence it. You can't prompt it. And so when, you know, Jesus later in the passage says, the spirit, as the wind goes where it will, you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going, so it is with those born of the spirit. You can't predict it, you can't anticipate it, you can't explain it, you can't control it. Why is that frustrating? 
because we're so good at being resourceful. We are get-or-done people. We see a problem, we try to solve it. But what Jesus is saying, you know what would be frustrating for, for Nicodemus? Because all of his knowledge and all of his training and all his wisdom and all of his reputation, none of that is a substitute for what the Holy Spirit must do. Which is to say to you folks in this room, I don't care how brilliant you are. I don't care what kind of education you have. I don't care how eloquent you might be. It is no substitute. I don't care what kind of piety you show. I don't care how many times you've been to Honduras. None of that is a substitute. It can't be. This being born from above is his work. If I sing with the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give my body to be burned, to sacrifice, but I have not love, I am nothing. That's what this regeneration is about. That's what it purposes. Every one of you in this room has a theory of how we can be okay. Every person in this room has a theory of what makes me okay. Some of which you are conscious of, and a lot of it you are not of. And most of us, most of the time, because we've been ingrained in this way, because we're just born that way, I will be okay if I just do this, that, or this. And I don't do these things. And I get it. I'm like that. It's the way I'm built. It's the way you're wired. And Jesus is saying, there's only one theory of okayness, and it's the, the Lord working in you on my behalf through the Spirit. That's how you're okay with the one who is the only one worth being okay before. That's frustrating. I don't like that. I'd rather contribute to my condition. But at the same time, it's frustrating and it's also freeing. Because if I can't engineer that, and if I can't earn that, then you know what is also true? If it has happened to me, I also cannot jeopardize it or nullify it. Because if it was his work to begin with, then it's not going to be my word to overturn it or rescind it. That's freeing. If it's his, and I belong to him because of that, and that's what regeneration is, awesome. Because it was always in his court and never was not. That's what regeneration purposes. What does it prompt? If, if regeneration is, is being awakened not only to the fact that we are no longer burdened with the guilt of our sin, if, to borrow the image that you heard from, from David there, if, if the prison door has suddenly been flown wide open and they said, you can go free, you can go free. Wait a minute, I haven't served my time. I know. This one will for you. That's what regeneration persuades and convinces you of. The door's open. You can go now. You did what you did. Somebody else will do the time. If that's what regeneration purposes, to persuade you of that truth, then what does it mean to prompt? What, what happens next? Okay, fast forward. Past Jesus' ministry, past the, you know, the passion, past the crucifixion, past the resurrection, and then right here on the heels of where Andrew went last week and the birth of the church at Pentecost. Spirit lands on tongues of fire and without even watching a single episode of Duolingo, they already start speaking in other languages. It's amazing. After that, you hear 
what says in, in chapter 2, verse 37, that they were all cut to the heart. What, why were they cut to the heart? What happened? These bunch of Jews listening to Peter give a sermon in the wake of what's just transpired with the birth of the church and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What's happened? Why are they cut to the heart? Because in the same way that Ezekiel spoke of a day that would come when the Spirit would show himself in ways that no one ever saw before, it's happened again, just like Joel said. I will pour out my Spirit. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. More on that in the weeks to come when we talk about spiritual giftingness. Don't worry, we'll get to it. That's going to happen. And this Jesus, you know how he got crucified? Because of you and because of the Lord. Unjustly was he crucified, but providentially he was crucified. Get your head around that one if you can. And that what happens in Psalm 16 where David is saying, you know what, my body will not see corruption. Whatever he meant by that, that's come to fruition in Jesus. In fact, he was dead his body didn't see corruption, and he rose again. And that the promise that the Spirit would come, that's come in Jesus. The one that they anticipated and how it would happen, he's the one. Why would they be cut to the heart? Because if you're a Jew, and you've just heard that you are somehow complicit in what's just gone on in his life, and that you've actually crucified the very anointed one of God, you're like, oh my gosh, what have we done? What have we done? And at the same time, we're asking, what do we do? Now, it's not very often that people come to you asking you, so what do I do in order to be reconciled to God again? But Peter was ready that day. He was ready with the pitch. And he says in verse chapter 2, verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here's what regeneration prompts. It does that within, and what does it prompt? Both an inward and an outward expression. That outward expression is of repentance from sin, but it is always and everywhere coupled with a faith in Jesus as the one to forgive that sin. It is, regeneration is, as if you were sitting in a doctor's office and we're going over the blood work and we're seeing acute chronic and irremediable conditions that will not be resolved apart from some sort of outside intervention. Not get your stuff together, but we're going to have to do something on your behalf because you're sick. That's what regeneration is out to do. And when you hear that, you are prompted to want to listen to the physician the physician who came for you and said, you're sick and I have something for you. And it is an expression to turn. And something occurs both in truth and within you where you begin to see the nature of your corruption and how deeply seated it sets. And you feel the weight of it all the more because at the same time you're being told you're sick, you're also being told, do you realize that you're made in the image of God? What compounds the sorrow of your condition is that, you're, that you possess a dignity that you were given irrespective of anything that's true of you, anything that you've done. I'm here to call you to turn, and I'm here to call you to turn in faith, in forgiveness for sin, and coming in faith to the one who was the physician that said, I've come to heal you by my own blood. 
What's prompted in the wake of regeneration is repentance and faith. And the Spirit is a gift that awakens you to that life. To see the folly. To see the self-deception in our sin. And to see its offensiveness. That's what the gift of the Spirit does within us. To awaken us to those truths. To those realities. To what the nature of godliness is and how it's to be found. More on that next week when we consider regeneration from a different point of view. This is the pattern. This is what regeneration prompts. And thinking, great, why do I care? I'll just tell you why. Because... The pattern that is established there at the beginning of faith is the same pattern you follow for the rest of your days. As you follow Jesus, how do I put this? You will discover more of your darkness than you perhaps ever wanted to know. As you go along, you will, you will discover patterns that are within you that you really didn't know were there and they have worked for you for a very long time but they don't work. And he has come to awaken you to them and for you to turn from them. But at the same time he is awakening you to them, he is always showing himself as the one who looks at you, not so that you might claw back to him to find his love again, but to look at you as one whose love is like this. It doesn't change. It is unbreakable. Luther's right. The life in Jesus is one continually of calling us to repentance of continually awakening you to the places in which you are just missing. But it is always with the face of, man, I love you. This is messed up. This is messed up. But my love for you is unchanging. It's the same pattern at the beginning. It's the same pattern throughout your life. That's what faith is called for. That's the life we're called to. But lest you think, that the Holy Spirit and the work of regeneration is all just sort of mainly concerned with your sin, though it is significantly, it has an actually greater point and purpose, and that's where I'm going to land this plane. What is it out to produce? I've already told you what it's out to purpose and what it prompts. What is it out to produce? Fast forward. Between Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 16, there have been miracles. There have been imprisonments. There have been miraculous liberations from prison. You've had a bunch of folks that have been shown to be called upon to act with mercy towards the sake of the church. You've seen Stephen, one of the first proto-deacons of the church, make a sermon before all the Jews, and he gets stoned right there on the spot. And who authorizes it and commends it? It's Paul. And between chapter 2 and chapter 16, Paul is converted Paul is assimilated into the work of the church slowly and with not a little suspicion and he's commissioned to go out to the Gentiles. And here in chapter 16, he and his team, they're out in Macedonia, which is now in Greece. And it's Saturday, so it's the Sabbath day. It's the fourth commandment. Honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. And they go down by the riverside. There was no van. And while they're at the riverside, they want to pray. They're not in Jerusalem. There is no temple. There is no synagogue. But you know what? Let's just gather to pray down by the riverside. Down by the riverside. And there's some women. And they start to chat. And among those women, it's a woman named Lydia. Uh, Forbes, Fortune 500, top 50. Uh, she's a 
businesswoman. She's an entrepreneur. She, she trades in purple. Lydia's linens. She could have opened a shop. She's there. She's listening. She's already one who worships God. She has an appreciation and affection for the God of Israel. It's not really clear like, what the rest of her background is or what she holds to. They just say she's a God-fearer. And then Paul, it says in verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. It's sort of lost there in translation. Something happened to her that not only led her to lock in and listen, but to be captivated by that which he had to say and persuaded her that it was true. Remember last, a few weeks ago, we listened to that history professor at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Molly Worthen. At some point in all of her reflections and thinking about Jesus and the church and all the things that she didn't get grapple with, she said, at some point I crossed the line realizing that I think the best explanation for Jesus and the Christian church is that he, in fact, was resurrected. That that clicked. It's similar. Lydia, it clicked. Paul was not content just to leave her in a place where she was a worshiper of Israel. Apparently, there is something more to know of God, namely that what had God had done, that you might have joy in the fact that your sins are forgiven and that you're his because of his work. And in that moment, something clicks. What regeneration purposes is a new way of seeing and a new life within. What it prompts is a repentance from sin and faith in who Jesus is through baptism. And what does she do? She gets her whole family baptized. Oh, that's going to be a fun conversation sometime. And then she says, come stay in my place. You need a place. I got a place. Let me be hospitable to you. And at first, Paul's like, yeah, yeah, we're, we're, thank you. We're good. And she's like, I insist. I insist. They stay at her place. Paul ends up, in two chapters later, he's in prison again. He finally gets released. Who's the first person he thinks of when he gets released? All right, guys, we're going to Lydia's. What's going on? What does it produce? It produces what happens to Lydia. Suddenly, everything that she has and everything that she is has now been made available she has now become open with the fullness of who she is and what she has for the good of the purposes of God. Friends, she embodies this thing we call hospitality, which you think is just about putting out you know, scones and tea. It is about welcoming the stranger. It is about welcoming those you barely know for the sake of God's purposes. It is showing love. It is being a voice and a face of warmth and welcome. You're going to have a chance to nominate new elders in a few months, and one of the qualifications for an elder is, are they hospitable? Are the guys that you might want to nominate, do they, do they have a face and voice of welcome and warmth and interest and curiosity in other people, regardless of whether they know it or not? Lydia is not an elder, but hospitality applies to everybody in the world. Everybody who knows him, she becomes a vital cog in what's going on in the life of the work of the kingdom. She is it. She embodies it. Hospitality is what's produced when regeneration occurs. Why would that be? Because, look, friends, I know things are more expensive these days, and I know that when it comes to, you know, making ends meet, it's kind of like somehow that's going to work out. The avocados, really? That old? That much? Oh, my gosh. But, friends, let's just be honest with ourselves. You're in a culture in which some of what you have 
is so that you can project a position of status. And you know it. What you drive, what shoes you wear, whatever it might be. Some of that is to kind of give an impression. Why would the regeneration of the spirit have an effect on that? Because then you realize that, you know, attempt to create status, it's really nothing compared to the status that you have in who Christ is and who you are to him. It produces an openness for what you have and who you are for the good of others and the purposes of God. I have great respect for Rain Wilson, and I really encourage you to listen to the conversation that he has with Russell Moore. It's in the resource doc. I, I think it's wonderful. I think it's fascinating. I, I appreciate where he's coming from. I would just say, to borrow a Tim Kellerism, the gospel is not advice that you embrace and then walk in. It is news that you are persuaded of by the Holy Spirit of God. And despite any of our very natural impulses to want to make those all fit together so that we can all just sort of get along, the only way you can do that is unless you start cutting stuff off of the puzzle pieces. And I hope that from my argument here on what regeneration is, that is something not only you do not have the option for, but you wouldn't want to if you could. Because what the Spirit is for you at the beginning and the life of your faith is assistance. The Spirit is Jesus' greatest companion, and he is also yours. And that's why we need him in all times. Let's pray. Help us to see you. Help us to rest in you. Help us to pray our tears to you and everything that we are afraid of and everything that we are confused by. Help us to love all people, all people, and to love our enemies. Because of what you have done and because of what you have left for our good in your spirit, help us to take rest in that even today. In Jesus' name, amen.